Hello, and welcome to this edition of the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. The Oregon Wine History Archive is located at Linfield College in McMinnville, Oregon, and is dedicated to preserving and sharing the Oregon wine story. This podcast will share these stories through oral history interviews we've conducted throughout the industry. Please enjoy these stories. Hi, my name is Rich Schmidt. I'm here with Kelly Gregory. We're at Adelsheim. It's uh, January 28th, 2020. Kelly, thanks so much for joining us today. Of course. Thanks for having me. Uh, first question, I guess, is why grapes? Why the vineyard? That's not a straightforward answer for me. My journey here is um, convoluted, and it's really interesting that I found myself here in Oregon. It all makes sense looking back on it, but Wine, for me, I didn't realize this at the time, but looking back on it, I love wine because it captures, it captures time. It captures the season. You can, you can go back to a bottle of wine and you recall certain things that were happening in that period of time. Um, you remember the weather or the person that you were working with or um, there's just so many sensories involved in wine. It's really fascinating and I love sort of the Obviously the job is appealing, but the lifestyle that it brings people with the celebration and just um, food and the whole thing, it's just really an interesting uh, product to be a part of. And out of all the things that you can think about, like if you ha could have your hands on and be making, wine is so fascinating because you actually can influence um, what you're tasting, whether it be just the site expressing itself, something that I did in the vineyard or my crew did in the vineyard makes a difference. Um, and then obviously what the winemaker does with it and then time in the bottle and so it's just this constantly evolving product that you don't get when you go to the store and buy a six-pack beer. Mm -hmm. It's fascinating. Mm -hmm. So what, at what point did you realize something you wanted to do and, it, and then at that point what did you do to get into the industry? Yeah, so that's when my story gets really interesting. I love telling this story because it's just fascinating to think back on and I think um, my parents out of anyone are just, they're probably the most um, proud of it all because they, I think they were just so confused about what I was doing um, and how I got here. But now that it, it's worked out and I'm so happy, I think everyone's just, it's, it's a cool story. So for me, I grew up loving plants, but I never really could figure out what I wanted to do. And um, I'm from St. Louis, Missouri. And when it was time to go to college, I picked the University of Missouri. Um, it was a really good Hort school, one of the best ag schools in the country, actually. But it's not where I started out. I started out um, in business and I wanted to open my own florist. I wanted to do like flower arrangements for weddings and events and things like that. And so I'm in this track and I'm kind of sitting there thinking like, I don't really know where this is going. Like I might just be doing a florist or I don't, I'm not really, I can't really picture myself in this path. So I had a bunch of friends that were in, um, in business of other tracks and I didn't really find myself connecting with them on like a professional level. And so I started to doubt that whole course. And so like any college student does, I changed my major and I switched over to art. I was like, I really like art. Art makes me passionate. And my parents were like, what are you doing with an art degree? So I switched to art because I'm stubborn and that's what I did. And I quickly realized that I was never gonna be able to do anything with my art degree. <laughs> and that it was just a hobby that I needed to keep um, for myself and to enjoy. And so, but I was like, maybe I could be an art teacher. So I switched over to art education. 
And then I quickly realized that the public schools were cutting art and music. But I was feeling pressure and I didn't really want to I didn't really want to change course again. So I stayed within the education program and I was like, I found this track for earth science. And I'm like, earth science is really cool. Like, well, I'm gonna go on that road. So I started focusing on geology and became enamored by it. And uh, really thought that I had I found what I was gonna do. And um, then I had to get I got placed in schools, and it was time to like help the teachers teach the kids, and I quickly realized that I didn't want to be a teacher. <laughs> I didn't like going to school and dealing with kids, high school kids, so I kind of freaked out. I'm like, what am I doing? I should just go down this geology road, and so abandon the education. I actually was far enough in the program that I had the certificate in secondary education, um, but I switched to a geology major, and my senior year I started getting recruited by um, people in the oil industry, and I I don't know why I didn't make the connection. I love soil, I love rocks, I love geology, but I didn't really think about how that was gonna translate into a career. And once I started having that harsh reality, I kind of panicked again. And so I, I didn't want to do that. So I switched my senior year. Um, <laughs> at this point, I had a secondary education degree. I had the full, you know, everything needed to get a geology degree. I just didn't follow through with it. Um, lots of different art classes and floral design classes and all that stuff and my parents they had cut me off a while ago and they still loved me but I was on my own um, and so I found this this degree and I don't know how I hadn't found it because I know I'd gone through the course curriculum book of Mizzou a hundred times but it, it circled back to Hort which is where I started with flowers um, and I started looking through all the course curriculum and the degree in plant science I'm like this is what I should have been doing all along like this makes sense I love plants what was I thinking so I you know, switched my major again, and they made you pick a, a route of how you wanted to go. And I was really um, instantly attracted to the, uh, it was called landscape design. Mm -hmm. And so it was kind of taking all these elements of business and um, art and plants and putting it together in this, this thing. And I, I loved it. I, I was like, I finally figured it out. You know, at this point, I'd only been, it was, I really wasn't going to be graduating much later than a normal, I was doing this all very quickly. I was making these changes and, and taking more than the normal amount of credits. And so, this might, you might think I've been in school for 10 years at this point, but I haven't been, right? <laughs> I'm still young. And so, I finished the program, and because it was, I had changed so many different times, I got, got on a weird um, graduation date. I graduated in, in the winter instead of the summer, like most people. Um, and that's when things sort of, went awry for me again because I had time <laughs> and I started thinking about my life and what I wanted to do. So I actually ended up applying for grad school in the University of Denver. Um, the mountains were calling me and so there was a program there for um, land, a master's of landscape architecture and so that's what I was going to do. And What I really wanted to do was um, go around for an architect firm and design and install um, landscapes at like tropical resorts. I'm like, I can go to Bali for six months, and then Hawaii for six months, and then Fiji. Like, that sounds perfect. <laughs> so I was going to do that. And I went to Denver, and I, I found my apartment. I put my first and last month rent down. I was, you know, I was very excited about it all. But then I had some time. At this point, it was probably March of 2010. And I was supposed to start school there um, in September. And so I was like, what am I going to do with myself? I don't really want to use this last little chunk of time, just kind of working, you know, like just an hourly job, just killing time. So I thought, I'm gonna do what I really wanna do, which is one of my goals in life is to go to all the national parks. 
and not just like go there and take a picture. Like I want to go there and experience these places, right? So I'm like, this is a perfect opportunity. I don't have you know kids. I don't have a job. I'm free. Let's do it. So I that's what I did. And I went out west. And I that summer I went to 18 different national parks and just saw some incredible scenery. This country is stunning. Um, I lived out of a tent, backpacked around the west, and this is where my journey to wine begins. So. Here I am thinking I'm you know, going to do this, this national park thing and then I'm going to go back to this new life, this next chapter, do my master's in, in Colorado and everything's going to follow this plan. And so I'm, I end up in California and I'm um, near the Redwoods and I decided I, sh I really want to go to Napa. And at this point I've been around food and wine and, but I never really thought about it. It was just there. It was a thing. Um, I never had had that wine that was like this is why I'm doing this. I had this aha moment when I was drinking that wine. That, that never happened for me. Um, but I'd heard of Napa and I wanted to see it and I was close. So I made a trip and I was wine tasting and everyone was dressed really fancy and had nice cars and I'd just been living in the woods for a while so it was a little awkward. But um, I made the best of it and I, I remember I went to a cafe and it was, it was kind of similar if you went to like Red Hills Market here. You can't walk in there and not be around at least 10 or 15 people in the industry. But I didn't know that because I didn't know anyone in the industry there, but there's, this whole place was just full of Napa Valley people in the industry. And so I'm having lunch and I cannot help but overhear this conversation that's going on at this table next to me and it's I think five or six um, middle-aged men that are clearly grape growers. Mm -hmm. And they're talking about the season and the vineyards and labor and what they're doing and how it's going and what they think is going to happen and I am just eavesdropping. <laughs> I'm like, this is a fascinating conversation over here. So I get back in my car and I'm looking at all these vineyards around me and I'm like, this, I had a different perspective. Like before when I would see a vineyard, I never thought about the people involved in the vineyard. The people involved making the decisions, tending the grapes, making the wine, like all of a sudden it was a whole new world. And I wanted to research it. And so I was on the road doing research and quickly discovered there's this career called viticulture and that people can get paid to do this. And I'm like, this is fascinating. And so I started going down this rabbit hole of all these different research articles and wow. I mean, the fact that you can you can do something in a vineyard and make a change in the way that the wine tastes was just amazing. So I'm, I'm at this point having like a weird thought in the back of my head, like, I don't know, maybe landscape architecture might, I mean, it could be cool, but this could be cool too. And so I go up to Oregon, I'm going to Crater Lake, and I, you know, as I'm researching this whole thing, I realize that there's also another wine region in Oregon. It's called the Willamette Valley, and they're doing Pinot, and I've never had a wine from Oregon before. Back home I definitely had seen Napa and had tried wines from California, but Oregon was new. And I could not believe how pretty Oregon was. I was taken back. I was actually caught off guard by, I didn't expect to love Oregon as much as I did and it was just stunning. And I went and I, I wanted to try some wineries and I just, I don't know why I picked them, but I try. I went one day and I, I tasted it to Mangerin and Sokolblosser. And I had a great experience. People were answering questions that I had. They were telling me things I didn't know. They were friendly. The wines were delicious. And I was like, this place is legit. So I go on my journey 
And I hadn't even made it out of Washington before I was registering myself, reaching out to Patty Skinkis at Oregon State. I found out that Oregon State had a VIT program, and I'm on the road emailing Patty. And in true Patty fashion, she was responsive and telling me everything I needed to know. And she was like, she probably thought I was crazy. I, you know, I told her a quickly, quick version of my story. <clears throat> and she's all, well, it's July and school starts in September and I have no funding because all of my research students had been locked up a year ago. So I can't really help you, but Oregon State does offer this program called the Masters of Ag. Um, we've never, no one's ever done it before, but it's available. <laughs> Here's some information, tell me if you're interested. So I read up on it and I'm like, yeah, I'm interested in this. And so I contact her, I'm like, I'm interested in it. What do I do? And so I, I'm trying to like get transcripts and all this stuff from the road. And um, I make it happen. And by the time I got back to Missouri, within I think three or four days, I'd heard back from Oregon State that I was accepted into the program. And so I told my parents. <laughs> and uh, told my boyfriend. And I contacted Colorado. And of course, I lost my tuition. And I lost my, all my rent and everything. But I didn't care. So I sold all my stuff that weekend on Craigslist and just brought my two dogs and my belongings that could fit in a small U-Haul trailer. And that week I moved across the country to Oregon. And I, I think I got to Corvallis about two weeks before classes started. I had no idea what I was doing. It just felt right. So I did it. And um, it was, I, I've never looked back. I haven't stopped. And I think a lot of it was luck. I mean, I, it, just the way the, the whole thing came together, but um, me getting paired up with Patty was just, it catapulted my career, because she's just amazing like that. And she, she, um, she really forced me to learn quickly and to work hard and put me in contact with the right people. Uh, so that was amazing. But when I, when I like think back on all the different crazy paths, it's so comforting to know that this, this job exists, this career exists, but really with this company, I mean, I'm, I make flower arrangements for the events here. Like, literally every little thing that I wanted to do, I'm, I teach Ed for, I do, I do outreach for consumers and for guests that come here, and it's very, it's very interesting how all the little things that I wanted to do, I'm literally getting to do here, which is why this job is just so much fun. <laughs> it doesn't feel like work. So I got lucky. It's quite a journey. Yeah, <laughs> it is. It works out well. Tell me about once you got to Oregon State. Tell me about the program. You're the you're the only no one's ever done this program yeah, before. So I, tell me about how it I unfolded. believe there's been at least one other person since me. One other person since me, I think, has completed the program under Patty. Um, it was perfect. It was exactly what I needed because it um, it's not your typical Masters of Science degree, so the um, requirements of your time aren't as um, extensive as someone who was like working for Patty conducting research. Um, and under that situation, you're required to work in the lab like 40 plus hours a week mm -hmm. and go to class. For me, there wasn't a, an hours per week required. Um, there was just a research project that had to be done in addition to all, so I was taking all the courses that the, that track would normally be taking, but it was just the research component was a little more forgiving and kind of free-formed. Um, so I conducted my research at Domain Druin. Um, I was looking at spur printing on Pinot Noir. Um, so that, that project was going on and because the because the program wasn't as rigorous with the time required in the lab, I was able to go out and get another job. 
Um, but it, it exposed me to the industry enough. Like it was, it, it, I, I was at the major own, I was doing research, I was learning the terms, I was in the vineyard, I was taking the courses, it was perfect. Um, and so I reached out to Patty and I was like, I really want, you know, I know I'm gonna be busy, but I think I can do this. I really wanna try to get like an internship or something this summer so I can figure out more about what it is that I've gotten myself into. And so she put me in contact with a few people and some of them were management companies, some of them were big estate wineries, some of them were small estate wineries. Um, and I did my research and um, one of the people that she put me in contact with was Lee Bartholomew at Archery Summit. And that one really was speaking to me. And so I was like, that's the kind of, that's the kind of job I think I want. I wanna work for an estate company that has a winemaker that I'm collaborating with. Um, it was about the size of the winery that I could feel myself um, being interested in working with. And so I reached out to Lee and she was like, well, you know, I've been thinking that we, um, we need help. I've, we've never had an intern here, so I don't know exactly what that would look like, but I'm, I'm interested. Mm -hmm. So we worked it out and that summer I, I worked with Lee. I got to work with Anna and um, Lee's incredible vineyard team. And I was just um, totally enlightened. I, I knew that this is this is what I wanted to do. I made the right decision. This is awesome. Um, I stayed on through harvest, so I got to see what that was, and that just energized me. And I was like, "This is really cool." Mm -hmm. So I did that, and then um, that winter, in kind of the following early spring, I signed up for another gig at Limelson. And so I was working at Limelson with Anthony King, and this is I'm still going through the master's program, still doing my research. It's Mandarin, and the plan there at Limelson was to work in the vineyard spring, summer, and then transition into the cellar and actually do like harvest work, which is, was a part of the puzzle that I thought I needed to really understand. I mean, for sure, I knew I wanted to go into the vit route, but I felt the connection between the two, and I knew I wanted to be in a state winery, so I felt like I should um, work harvest and understand it from the cellar side. So I was all lined up to do that. I had everything figured out for the next eight months. I was um, getting ready to graduate and was gonna work at Limelson and everything was good. And one day I go to work at Limelson and Anthony's like, hey, have you, have you heard of Adelsheim? And I'm like, yeah, I've heard of Adelsheim. They're very involved in the industry and research and it's hard to like go anywhere and not see their name when they're just lots of trials and things like that to taste. So I'd, I've been exposed to the brand. Um, and he's like, there's a job that uh, I think you'd be interested in. I'm like, he's like, have you seen it? I'm like, no, I thought I had a job with you for the next eight months. And he's like, you do, but I, I was just at this meeting with Chad, he's the vineyard manager at Adelsheim, and he was telling me they've got this position that they, he just can't find the right person for. And as he's talking me through the job, I just couldn't help but to think that you should probably be considered for the position. I'm like, cool, yeah, send me the, send me the posting. I, I didn't know anything about it, I wasn't looking for a job. So he sends me in, I'm like, yeah, I'm interested. And so Chad and I got in conversation, and that week actually I had my thesis defense, and he came, and I was very nervous. <laughs> and um, the next day I had an official interview at Adelsheim. I remember driving up from Corvallis, and I met with David Adelsheim, and I did my research, and I was like, oh my gosh, I'm meeting with David Adelsheim. And uh, Chad, and he took me around to meet Dave Page, and all just, big people, right? And I was like, wow, this is, this is crazy. And the job actually seemed perfect. I was very excited about what they were um, presenting to me. And within a few days, they called me back and offered me this position. And 
I think it was July or June and Chad was busy and he's like, when can you start? And I think he hired me on a Friday and I started on a Monday. So I called Anthony and I said, hey, I'm not going to be showing up for the internship on Monday, <laughs> but thank you. And for the longest time, whenever I'd see Anthony, I'd be like, thank you so much. Like I would have never even known about this job. I mean, that's what got me in the door at Adelsheim back in July of 2012. So they hired me as um, the viticulture technician and the grower relations. And um, so the vit tech, I was going around basically helping Chad do all, everything vit related on the estate properties. And then the grower relations role was a really interesting role that I think helped me in my career a lot. It helped me meet a lot of people, mm -hmm. see a lot of vineyards, um, understand the industry on a more dynamic level. Um, and so I was going around and um, finding interesting fruit sources, managing those relationships, mm -hmm. contracts, site visits, working with um, management companies to tell them how to take care of the blocks that we were buying fruit from. Mm -hmm. Um, and I loved it. It was really interesting. It was a great like second part of what I did for an estate company. Um, but through that, I think I was able to really identify that estate wineries is where I want to go. There's way more of a connection, I feel like, to, to the, to, like with the management company, it feels like once the grapes are dropped off at the winery, it's over, mm -hmm. whereas for me, that's where it starts to get interesting because then it's like, let's actually see what mm -hmm. the work that my crew did all summer, the changes that I implemented, let's taste it and let's watch it evolve and let's learn from that. Mm -hmm. um, and I love that element of what you get in a state winery. Mm -hmm. So that's been great. I'm still the grower relations for this company. Mm -hmm. um, some incredible relationships that we have with people that we've been buying fruit from for a really long time. Um, just, it's just really, the industry is full of fascinating people that are so um, wonderful, really, to be a part of. It's just fun to go out and see people and see gorgeous properties and see what's going on outside of my little bubble of my 175 acres that I'm in charge of. So I do that. And then um, in 2014, I got um, promoted from the viticulture technician to the assistant vineyard manager. And I did that. I was really starting to learn a lot about everything on our properties. And it's fascinating because all of our vineyards are different. Every season's different. And so you start to feel like you're learning a lot, but really you have so much to learn. Mm -hmm. And it's, I mean, I, I still feel like that. Like it's every, every week or two weeks, you're doing something different and you don't see that th same thing again until the next year. And even then it's different mm -hmm. because the season's different and it's agriculture. And so I, that's what I love about this job though, but it is also very humbling. It's like, if you really want to know, go talk to David, because David's been doing this for 50 years. <laughs> like he might've seen a similar situation. Like it's that kind of thing. Like the, the, the learning curve in this industry is, it's interesting mm -hmm. because the cycle of what you do doesn't necessarily repeat itself. Mm -hmm. Like an accountant who goes to work every day and knows what they're getting themselves into. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, so I, yeah, I, I got promoted in 2014, stayed in that role until um, January of 2017. Chad left and started his own management company and the company asked me if I wanted to step up and be in charge and I said, yes, of course, that's what I want to do. So I've been in charge um, of our state properties, leading a crew of incredible people just the most skilled um, group of people. I'm so blessed to have them. 
some of them, you know, on 20, 30 years, mm -hmm. over 200 years of when you combine them, just knowledge of our vineyards, only working in our vineyards really elevates us. It's incredible. So those are the people that I learn from mm -hmm. every day. Mm -hmm. They know the vineyards like the back of their hand. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, it's just been, it's been a great, it's been a great go around. I'm curious when you got to Oregon State, uh, you had you, you had done you had landscape background, you had science background, didn't have any specific viticulture background. What None. about viticulture specifically reeled you in and made you think this is what I want to do? It was that conversation that I heard of those um, those individuals down in Napa. The, the things they were talking about, it wasn't it didn't strike me as growing corn in Missouri. You know what I mean? It was there there was it was complex. Mm -hmm there was lots of different variables involved. And so that just sparked my interest enough to make me want to go research. And that's when it really spiraled uh, just out of control because there was so many different research papers and internet publications and just, it became very clear that just the concept of terroir and how it actually plays a role, um, the concept of vintage and style and intention and all these things, they are actually, they are translated in front of you into this product that's evolving through time was just mind blowing. And I literally can't think of another thing like that. I mean, you can think of like coffee and chocolate and spices, they, they, they show where they're being grown, but they're not like just this science project that, um, can be shared with friends mm -hmm. and in uh, celebration and change over time and stored in a vault. I mean, it's just the, the history and the, just the, the romance behind it all is, it's really fascinating. Talk about the steep learning curve and I'm yeah. curious, at what point do you start feeling comfortable talking about these kinds of things? So learning all the terminology, learning all the place names, learning all the people, what point do you feel a part of the industry? It's a good question. I don't really know when I felt like I was being accepted. I'm not, that's, I don't know. I just, um, you gotta, you gotta show up and there's, um, there's a group of us that meet and we're, it's called the VitTech meeting. Being a part of that um, and there, there's just some really smart people in that group that have been around for in the Oregon wine industry growing grapes for a while. Some of them are newcomers, but I mean, if you're, if you're in there in that room and learning from them and they see you and you're building those relationships, that's a good starting point. Um, getting asked to do things like this. I mean, it's kind of like this aha moment. I'm only 33 years old and I'm just, I'm, I'm trying not to, I, I don't wake up and think, wow, people in the Oregon industry recognize me or I've made it. I'm just, just doing my job. Mm -hmm. And I, you know, having fun and seeing what happens along the way. <laughs> Does that answer your question? Absolutely, yeah. Okay. Uh, we'll come back to it in a second, but I'm, sure. I'm curious about, you have your 170 acres here that mm -hmm. you're in charge of, and also dealing with re relationships with other growers. Sure. I'm, I'm curious, all, all the different sites, how long does it take you to learn the sites, to understand the terroir, and to know what you're looking for? Yeah. So I can walk into a vineyard and really quickly have some opinions on it, um, but to know how it's going to taste takes a little bit of time, and to know how it's going to respond to certain things you do takes even more time. 
Um, so for me, I I just finished my eighth vintage at Adelsheim. I I have a pretty good handle on my vineyard sites. Um, they all are different. They all have little zones within them that are different. Um, and by no means do I have them all figured out, but I think that it takes, I mean, it depends on the size of the vineyard and the, the complexity within the vineyard and how non-uniform it is or whatnot, but you, I think you have to see it through at least three seasons before you can really understand the patterns that that site, the characteristics of that site. If, if I look back on all the vineyards that I've worked with, I think after three seasons, you see enough change and variation within those seasons that you can kind of say, okay, in this season, this is what happened that summer, and this is what, this is how my vines responded, and this year is a little bit different. Um, but you can certainly walk into a site and have an opinion on it pretty quickly. Just paying attention to the soil and the, the, the place that you're in and the canopy health and just that kind of like deductions that you can make from the vigor that you're seeing and things like that. There's a lot to learn from that instantly. You talked earlier about the relationship between the, your job and the, and the winemaker here and that was, that was something that appealed to you yeah. and we're looking for. Tell me about the relationship you have to have with your vineyard sources and that kind of symbiosis there. What do you, what do you ask from them? What do they ask from you? How do you build those relationships? Right, you're, you're referring to the fruit that we buy. Right, sir, yes, uh, your, mm -hmm. off, your, your off sites. Yeah, that is very dynamic. Um, that is a very dynamic world because you've got so many different vineyard owners. You've got the vineyard owner who lives in California and owns a property in Oregon and never comes up here and they have a management company um, managing everything from them, from the contracts to the whole deal. And those people, I'm just you know working with the management company and at this point, we've got a pretty good relationship. We've worked together on so many different properties. That relationship's pretty smooth sailing. Mm -hmm. um, and then you've got people who, they live on the vineyard and they wanna drive tractor but have the management company do everything else. And th that dynamic is a little bit more interesting because there's, now there's two people that you have to put your request to and trying to figure out the chain of command that's, that's there. Um, and then you've got some people that just wanna make money and some people who don't care about making money they just want to sell the best fruit possible to the best wineries they can and so i mean it's a full spectrum and um we've we've gone through we've we've bought a lot of fruit over the years and there's a small list of people that we keep working with and so it's a trial and error kind of thing just figuring out what relationships align with what you're trying to do with the wine that you're trying to make um, and we're not just buying grapes. We're, we're, we're building a relationship with these people. And when you do that, you feel connected to the whole, their whole story. Mm -hmm. And you are more respectful of, of their fruit and the wine that you're making from it. And it makes it more, it feels more like a connection. It's almost like an extension of our estate. Mm -hmm. And that's kind of the approach that we've been with our growers. Um, so it's been, it's been a really pleasant experience. I mean, there's been some I've grown up a lot in that role, having to have some hard conversations with people, conversations I didn't want to have. Mm -hmm. um, had to let growers go, had to have you know, difficult conversations about things that have happened that 
that shouldn't have happened and why we're unhappy. I mean, seriously, like a dynamic role. Mm -hmm. um, but it's been great for me. Mm -hmm. And my assistant, um, who I hired in 2017, she, I actually um, gave her some of my growers to help, to help her learn that element of this industry because I think it was so influential for me. Um, and she's just, I can just see her like just blossoming because she's got that, that little world to deal with. It just is really, um, it's the people, the people element of it. And there's a lot of people elements in this job. Like I can, I can be in the vineyard with my crew and you know, we're just farming and I have to leave and come to the winery and I smell like sulfur and I am sweaty and I'm meeting with um, some of our, you know, longest club members. Mm -hmm. And then after that, I have a meeting with a sales group that wants to go on a vineyard tour. Um, and then after that, I'm going over to a grower site and hanging out with a, you know, really important person in the industry who has a wonderful vineyard. And so it's crazy, the amount of people and the different backgrounds that you deal with. And, but it's refreshing and it never gets old. There's always something new going on between the different the different roles that you have in a winery and all the different people that make up the industry and then the elements of this of it being agriculture and so it's a, you're dealing with a growing product mm -hmm. that's constantly going through different phases of growth and therefore your job is changing mm -hmm. um doesn't get boring doesn't get boring at all i can imagine not yeah it's fun but it's also um you don't realize it until harvest is over you're like i need a break like I've just been going nonstop for months and I need a break. And that's what, that's what post-harvest is for us. It's like when you're a teacher and you've got summer break, although any teacher will tell you they're not really on summer break, just like I'm not on winter break, but it's just a chance to kind of reset and have a little bit of a, a time to assess what just happened and get yourself ready for the next year. What's your favorite part of the year in the vineyard? What, is there a certain part that speaks to you? So there's not one particular time. It's not right now when it's raining and muddy and <laughs> cold, that's for sure. I mean, that's, that's a beautiful part of the season and um, it's a necessary thing and very thankful for the rain. Um, but for me, I always find um, springtime just in Oregon, just like, it's just beautiful. It's like, wow, I'm, I'm outside again, the vines are growing. Look where I work, this is incredible. So that, that's a really exciting time. And that's when you really start to understand kind of how the season's gonna look. You see how, how much rainfall you got, how early the bud break happened. Um, are the vines growing quick? Are they growing slow? It, it's when it starts to become apparent, maybe like your first clue of like, how's this season gonna shake out? And we all know that, that you don't really know that until September, um, like last year. But it's sort of your first kind of like, okay, I'm putting my farmer hat on, like this is what I'm thinking. This is what I'm gonna start doing. That's when you start doing things, like you're starting to pay attention to your soil work and your um, canopy, canopy management decisions and things like that. So that's always kind of the energizing start for me. Um, I, for some odd reason, love crop estimations. I know people kind of dread that because it's a super tedious task, but I love it. Like I just totally embrace it and I'm, very competitive with myself and I try to see how accurate I can be. <laughs> so I enjoy that stage of the summer, the growing season. And then um, I'm sure every vineyard manager will say this, but there's just something about harvest that um, it's just this time when you see these beautiful grapes being picked and just you just look around and you're like, 
if you think back on the whole season, how several months ago the vines were asleep, being pruned, and you, you have this crew of people, just incredible people, that we all are, we should just be incredibly grateful for. Um, every day showing up, working their butts off, hand labor when it's hot out, when it's cold out, tending this growing vine into something that's made this wonderful product and we're gonna deliver it to the winery and watch them turn it into beautiful wine that we can share with people. It's just that's when the whole puzzle comes together and it's just this sense of accomplishment and there's a lot of pride involved in that moment when you just know that you've done a good job, your team's done a good job and you're gonna make your winemaker happy. It's a good feeling. What are the biggest challenges you deal with in the vineyard, as, especially in your role? What are the biggest challenges you deal with? My dog not listening to me when he <laughs> runs away after birds and ponds. No, that's a, that's a daily struggle. Um, and then the mud that follows. Um, the, some of the challenges, labor, that's the real one. Mm -hmm. That's the one that people don't really want to talk about. It's a lot easier to talk about phylloxera and climate change, but labor is real um, and it affects all of us. And um, that one, that one I'm concerned about. Um, and then I think a big challenge that's not really like my challenge, but I think it's sort of a challenge for if I think back on sort of where we've come quickly, really, because the Oregon wine industry is young. There's a lot of like outsiders trying to come in and play and it's not really like the people who invest in Oregon or move to Oregon and do it. It's, the, it's more of the grapes that are being purchased in Oregon and being like taken across state lines, bottled with non-Pinot from not Oregon and then put an Oregon label on it. That's a, that's a problem. Mm -hmm. That's a challenge to the industry because it's allowing people to charge $10 for a bottle of wine put Oregon Pinot on it. For one, it's not truly Oregon Pinot, and for two, people who are making Oregon Pinot can't compete with those prices. Mm -hmm. So that's, a, that's one that we're gonna have to figure out. If it can be figured out, I'm not sure. But that one and labor are, they're, they're real issues right now. When you talk about labor, you're, I assume you mean like a shortage of labor or difficulty finding? Um, it's, Kind of that. It's more of an uncertainty of labor. It's not, it's, it's almost a fear of labor becoming unavailable. Um, not necessarily, I can't find the work right now to do this job. I mean, sometimes that's a very real thing. Like with, in Oregon, we're seeing, um, there's been a few different varieties of blueberries that have come out that have extended the blueberry picking season earlier and later. Um, and we've seen direct impact on people being available in the vineyards to do that because people would rather pick fruit, whether it be blueberries, strawberries, grapes, than raise wires in the vineyard. That's where the money is, piece rate. So when we have things like that happening with strawberries and blueberries, there's, there, there's very much a, a pull on labor, so we see that. But it's more of the skilled workers are getting older. Mm -hmm and there's not a new generation of people coming in. Um, and you can't just say, you be a really good tractor driver, I'm gonna teach you how to be a tractor driver, or I'm gonna send you to this school to be a tractor driver. I mean, these are like learned skills that just happen, 
and it's very difficult to just like post an ad online and find a tractor driver or find a vineyard foreman like you can for an office manager. Mm-hmm. So it's just, it's this, it's this, the whole industry's heartbeat is on that labor. And so we know we need it and it's incredibly important to us. Um, but it's almost like out of our power. Mm-hmm. So it's sort of scary. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. As you look ahead, uh, kind of getting ahead of myself, but as you look ahead, what, what are the solutions? What can you, what can you do or what are you going to try to do? Um, we've got, we're, I have young people on my crew that I'm basically carrying a bigger crew than I need for the acres that I farm to train them to be up and coming foremen or up and coming tractor foremen or um, one individual um, we had working on our vineyards through a contract company for a while and he just showed a lot of uh, potential and I brought him on to our permanent crew and you know asked him if what, what he wanted to do what his interests were and he told me he wants to be a vineyard manager and um, so he's been he's been under the wing of our foreman and um, this term he's actually started his first term in classes in college first kid in his family to go to college and Adelsheim's helping put him through that um, also the ERAF foundation is helping put him mm-hmm. through that so just super grateful for all the resources that we have to try to make it um, available to people but yeah he's he's going through classes to be a vineyard manager and so it's it's identifying your your potential need in the future, but also just the industry's need, and we need more people, um, not just with viticulture degrees from Oregon State and UC Davis, but that know how to work in the vineyard and drive tractor and who have been farming. Because um, that's one of the really interesting things about vineyard management that I've noticed is a lot of these people come into it with degrees, and whereas a lot of like, I'm from the Midwest, and it's just family farm. Mm-hmm. Like you just grew up on a farm, your grandpa had a farm, that's your farm now, and that's what you do, and you've been driving tractors since you were 10, and you don't even think twice about it. And it's very different in the wine industry, at least in the United States. Mm-hmm. So it's, a, it's an interesting dynamic, and um, like I said, it's just very hard. You can't, there's no like job posting where you can just find the workers you need. It's about who you know and if they show up. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So you're in a role in the industry that's traditionally been a fairly male-dominated role. Tell me about being a young woman in the, in the, especially the vineyard side of the wine industry. Yeah, I didn't realize that at all because I didn't really know what I was getting myself into. Um, and so, and when I came here, I studied under Patty, Dr. Skinkis, and then I worked with Lee. Um, and so I didn't really realize that. And then I remember I think I got invited to like one of the Vit Tech meetings eight years ago and I walk into this room and it was like Dr. Skinkus was there and Lee was there and I'm like, sweet, I know these people. And then it was a room full of men and I'm like, okay, this makes sense. And a lot of the research publications that I've been reading were from men and, but I never paid attention to it. Honestly, it didn't bother me at all. Everyone's been very accepting of the fact that I'm, they don't even, I don't even feel like I'm being treated differently. Um, Adelsheim itself is a very, there's a lot of females that work at this company. Um, So it's never really been a barrier for me. And I, I don't think it's been like a, 
a blessing either. I don't think I've gotten like handouts or gotten where I've been because I'm a female and I don't think I've been held back or suppressed because of it. Um, but it is interesting, like I can, when it's, when it's really interesting is when I'm like having a vineyard lunch and I'm the official beer buyer so I show up with a bunch of beers and it's 50, maybe three or four women, 50 men, field workers that speak Spanish. That's when I'm like, that's when I realize that I'm in, a, I'm in an interesting role here. This is a dynamic situation I'm in. Um, and it goes back to the people thing. I mean, there's just so many different cultures and backgrounds and um, languages and um, experiences and it's just fascinating navigating all of that. Na navigating and managing people is almost as much of my job as managing vineyards. Mm -hmm. It's probably the same for most professional careers, but it just caught me off guard at first. Do you enjoy that part of it? It's yeah. Like, it seems like you do. I do. It's, it's that layered with this, the changing, growing season keeps me from getting bored. If you can tell, I, like, I can't just do one thing, which is why I changed my career path like 10 times. <laughs> So, but I think I'm good here because it's just there's it's always just this change and it's always it's it's consistent enough that you can learn and improve yourself, but it's dynamic enough that it's never stagnant. Mm -hmm. We don't want you changing your major again. No, <laughs> not doing that. Uh, we're gonna go a little philosophical on here and ask you what uh, what is wine significance in in society? Hmm, that's an interesting question. Um. I mean, it can go back, you can date it back to, I mean, it's been a part of people for so long. It's, it's been a way of life, really. I mean, some cultures, it's, they're drinking wine at breakfast. Like wine at my house with my husband, dinner, you get your forks and your knives and your plates and then you get your wine glasses and you open the bottle of wine. I mean, it's just, it's a part of our life. Um, but I think wine can pull people together, whether or not it's just um, breaking barriers or giving people something to relax and come together and um, just share um, around a dinner table. Food is, food is uniting in all world, in, in the whole world, every single country, people eat. People come to a dinner table, they sit down, they gather, they celebrate. Um, and it's and wine is there. So without us even paying attention to it, wine is just in our lives. Um, and there's only a small percentage of people who actually like think about wine. It's kind of just there, but there's there's this fraction of, of the population that sort of becomes curious about wine and really goes down the journey of wine and obsesses about it and wants to learn and explore. And those are the people in society that I find interesting. Like, what made you lash onto this and why do you want to learn so much about it? Not even from a career path, but more of just like a, just, I just want to learn about wine and I want to, I want to know this world and I want to find the most incredible wine that there is. Like, those people, thank them. Because <laughs> I have a draw because of them. Um, but, yeah, I don't know. I've never really thought about that. I just think wine is... For me, when I think about it, I don't think of it as a, like a, not f necessarily from a historical, like where have we gotten 
all the crazy things that probably happened with wine. It's more for me, it's more of like a happiness part of our lives. It brings people together. We can have, you can have people that don't speak the same language and they can enjoy a glass of wine and they know if wine's good or wine's bad and they understand everything that it took to make that. And that's one of the beautiful things about wine. It's unifying. Mm -hmm. I'm curious about part of what your answer there, you talk about the people understanding what goes into wine. Do you feel like people do understand, especially your role and your crew's role in what goes into wine? There's, there's, a, there's a percentage of the population that does. And, um, but there are so many people that don't. And it's, it's awesome because when, when you find those people and they want to listen, you can just tell they're just like, well, they're like me eight years ago. Their mind is blown because no one thinks about wine that way. Like I can't tell you how many times wine would be on the dinner table growing up and I would see a picture of um, a vineyard on a wall or drive by a winery. There was, you know, Missouri is a wine region. My parents like to remind me of that daily. <laughs> you know, you can come back home and grow grapes there. Um, but you just, <laughs> It's funny, right? I like, I, I like Pinot, not Norton. Um, but where were we going with this question? Yeah, the appreciation of, the, of your role, the vineyard role in, in the making of the wine. Yeah, yeah, so I feel like a lot of people, like when, when you're first starting to explore this learning process of, of it all, I think a lot of people go to the winemaking side. They want to know like how the wine's made, like what is it? And then when they when they finally have piqued their interest there, then they come into the vineyard side. And that's when I think people um, really start to feel the connection because that's you can't replicate that. Every site is unique. You can't recreate a site. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And when you're doing your job properly as a vineyard manager, you're allowing that site to express itself um, to its fullest potential. That's your job. And it's literally a once in a lifetime opportunity with this one vineyard. Like there's no other vineyard that's going to give you that result. Mm -hmm. And I think that's when people really become fascinated with wine because then they're on this quest to find not just their favorite winemaker, but their favorite vineyard and their favorite vintage. And then they want to see how that vintage changes over time. And that's what really pulls people on the journey. That's really kept me here. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You were here when, the, when David Adelsheim sold and, and, yeah. and, and, the, and the winery changed hands. Tell me about the transition, if, if it was noticeable, if any it changes and, uh, and what it's been like since sure. the transition. So the owners of um, Adelsheim now were co-owners when I was here and they have been for quite some time. So that, that transition felt as natural as a transition could be. Um, not having David here as much, now he's doing a lot of like export roles and a lot of traveling for being a brand ambassador and so he's on the road a lot more. So just seeing David less, I, I would say is the biggest change. Mm -hmm. um, but everything else is, feels business as usual. It's still very much, um, our, our core principles are the same, our intentions are the same, our goals are the same. Um, the company, the way it's ran, feels very similar. Um, so I think it's been, a, it's been a great thing, really. Um, and 
we just, just David not being here on a more day-to-day -day basis, I think is the biggest change. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I don't even necessarily know if that's because of the, of the purchase. I think it's more of just a shift in David's role mm -hmm. and where he wanted to take this next part of his career. And he's just really going out in the world and letting everyone know about Oregon. I mean, David is brand Oregon at this point. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I can't think of a better person for, for, for anyone to be doing that. Absolutely. So you haven't, you haven't been in the industry too terribly long, but I'm, no. I'm curious what, what changes you've seen to Oregon wine since you've been, been a part of it and yeah. where, where it stands now versus where it stands when you got into it. It's crazy how much change. I mean, if, I think Oregon Pinot is just like on the fast track because I, the industry is young. And if you think of how much we've accomplished in such a short period of time when you take into account what we're dealing with and the fact that it takes time to make change happen in a perennial product. Um, I mean, it takes three years to get vines producing fruit. It takes five years until they're full production. It takes, you know, 18 months from harvest to bottling release. I mean, everything is slow here. It's, we're not running a manufacturing facility where you're gonna have your product in two days from an Amazon free shipping box. <laughs> like, if only. so it's slow. And, but if you take all that into account and you, and you look at where we are today, it's fascinating. We've, we're, this industry is packed full of motivated people, um, skilled people, uh, and it's incredible. But there's definitely been some change just in the time that I've been here. Like one of the more obvious ones is Pinot Gris. Just the varieties that people are planting. So much Pinot Gris has been replaced with Chardonnay and Pinot. Pinot Noir has been replaced with Chardonnay. People are planting Chardonnay now in areas where if someone 10 years ago, 10, 15 years ago would have said we should plant a little bit of Chardonnay, they would never go to the like prized part of their vineyard and say we're putting it there. Mm -hmm. That's where the Pinot Noir is going. But people are doing that with Chardonnay now. So just seeing a shift in varietals um, is very clear. Um, new clones of Pinot and Chardonnay um, people are getting more adventurous with. Also, there's more like, these are two kind of extreme opposites, but it kind of just shows the change that's happening. There's a lot more um, like valley floor production vineyards going in, mm -hmm. especially down south a little bit. So the, the region is expanding. Um, and then the opposite of that, there's lots of little, I mean, they're smaller in nature, but they're popping up everywhere. People going up into elevations that never would have been considered. Mm -hmm worth taking the risk and planting on north facing exposures and part of that is for sparkling mm -hmm. which is a new change that we're all happy about <laughs> and part of it is um people getting more uh convinced that the temperatures are shifting here and that they can go into different zones that they didn't consider that possible 20 30 years ago um and part of it is people just being um, more tolerant to risk and wanting to raise the bar and see, see what, what, it's the what if. Mm -hmm. What if I plant up there? Mm -hmm. Let's diversify. So that's, that's definitely, those are happening. And then just kind of the rebirth of, and I mean, this is happening here. It's one of the exciting things for me. I wanna, I wanna see through this um, kind of like Adelsheim 2.0 where some of our, I mean, we're one of the pioneers here, so we have some old vines, and I've redeveloped a lot of it. We've had to tear out vines and redevelop, and I've convinced Gina to do field blends, and we planted different clones and different rootstock trials, and so there's, there's a whole wave of 
cool stuff coming down the pipeline. And I'm really excited to be part of that and to watch those vines grow up and to put my stamp on that. Um, but just seeing um, people kind of experimenting with vine spacing. Like I feel like when I first started here in the industry, there was still some buzz about like high density spacings. And I think people have kind of decided not to do that as much anymore. And they've kind of gone back to like what we, what we were doing before. And um, just there's a little bit of a learning curve going on. And then I think people adapting to where they think um, Oregon could go, just making sure they're prepared. So lots of people are putting in, I mean, and nowadays, if a vineyard's going in, it's most likely has irrigation mm -hmm. being installed. And people pay more attention to rootstocks, whereas before it was just kind of like, here's my two rootstocks, just pick one, I don't care. <laughs> now people are like really starting to pay attention to the rootstocks and the plant material and making sure the plants are clean. And so I think there's a lot more, um, there's a lot more going on in the vineyard side. Mm -hmm. um, I can't speak to the winemaking side, but I know they're, they're up to stuff and they're, <laughs> they're learning new things all the time and doing lots of different experiments. But definitely changing. Um, and then there's just like, like with the grow relations role, I get out and I see so many vineyards and it's hard to keep track of them at this point. I'm like, what's this vineyard name and who is this person? And I'll go to the store and I'm like, what is this label? Like I feel disconnected almost and I sh I'm in it. Mm -hmm. So just trying to keep up with that boom is, it's crazy. It's happening quickly. Can you imagine our role trying to keep track of all the outside? <laughs> yeah. Uh, so tell me what you see in the future for Oregon wine as you look, say, 10 years down the road. And I'm specifically in this question curious about vineyard issues, your good or bad things happening to vineyards that you're, you're yeah. kind of seeing in the future. Yeah. Vineyard, Oregon vineyards in 10 years. Well, I think there's going to be all, all this Chardonnay is going to be grown up and it's going to be delicious. <laughs> so I think. Um, I think Oregon Chardonnay is, it's already a thing, but I think it's going to be a thing. It's going to be, um, capture, it's going to capture the audience of Americans and hopefully the world. Um, there's already a lot of buzz behind it and a lot of traction and some of the wines that we've been making are just incredible, but like a lot of these vineyards, they're being, they're being replanted, people are trying new clones. And so we're kind of right in the beginning of this, this wave of momentum that's coming. Um, so I think I can't picture Oregon in 10 years without it very much involving Chardonnay, mm -hmm. really good Chardonnay. Um, that's, that is like the biggest change for me that I see when I think just about like Oregon, because right now for me it's Pinot. Um, and so I think that's, we're going we're gonna to see it shift. Um, and I think in 10 years, the whole old vine story that exists in a few houses around here isn't really going to be much of the story anymore. Phylloxera is, it's bad and most people have already had to tear out their vines and there's just a few acres hanging on here and there and so I, I can't imagine how much more of that is around in 10 years. So just a new focus on um, clean plants, making sure the nurseries are giving us clean plants and it, in 10 years, we'll have identified other problems that we don't know about right now that we're dealing with. So that's, I mean, that is, that is the nature of uh, perennial crop is trying to, trying to mitigate these pests, these viruses, diseases that are coming in so that we can have these 100-year-old vineyards. Because mm -hmm. that's the goal. Mm -hmm. We don't want to be on the 15-year, 20-year cycle. Um, 
So I hope in 10 years these vines are grown up and they're a lot, all the development or the replanting that's happening, they're establishing themselves, they look healthy, and, that, and it becoming apparent that we can be farming these in 90, 100 years. That would be awesome. Because that's when you learn. I mean, going back to the question about how many vintages does it take before you know, you think you kind of understand a vineyard, it takes a while to understand the vine because the first three years they're just doing their thing and then the first few years of fruit you can't really pinpoint what kind of fruit is going to come from that vineyard not even because of vintage variation it's because the vines haven't established themselves they're in this young fruit stage and they're just sort of adolescent and fruity and it takes to about year 10 before you're like this is what this block tastes like mm -hmm. And then it takes several years of doing different things in the vineyard and doing different things in the winery before you learn, this is, this is the wine that we're trying to make from this. This is how we can best um, showcase the style of this block. And so you're at year 10, 15, and then if you have red blotch or you have X, Y, Z, and you have to tear it out and start all over, that, that can be um, damaging to the industry mm -hmm. and the forward motion. Mm -hmm. So I hope that whole thing, I hope we can put the brakes on all that. Mm -hmm. What about as you look ahead for yourself 10 years down the road? What do you, what do you foresee for your own future? Well, when I look into the future, the most notable thing I can see is I want to have this baby in 20 weeks. Um, Congratulations. And thank you. And then I want to, um, I really want to, I really want to, going back to kind of the conversation of it taking so long to understand this world. Mm -hmm. I, I think that's true, and I, in order to really feel like I've figured it out or I'm figuring it out, I feel like I need to stay connected to the place. Because if I jump over here, I'm kind of starting over. I mean, I have all this other experience, but I've lost the experience that I have from um, these six vineyards that I'm overseeing. And so I would really love to see myself staying here at Adelsheim, growing these vines up that I'm redeveloping, and just continuing to hone in on this sense of place that um, I'm responsible for. And every year, just continuing to make not just the vineyard, but the whole landscape that I'm um, in charge of better than the way I left it the day before or the year before. And, and all of that stuff takes time. So that's, that's, in 10 years, I don't really see myself in a different wine growing region, at a bigger company, in a management company role. I really am stuck, which is hard to believe when you hear my original story about all the times <laughs> that I moved around. I picture myself here, mm -hmm. learning everything there is to know about these vineyards and making the most helping the team make the most expressive wines that we can that really showcase the Shehala Mountains, the Willamette Valley, the Adelsheim style, and um, yeah, that's pretty, that's a pretty cool thing to think about. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. But building your own kind of vineyard legacy here. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Tell me, you mentioned, you kind of hinted at this earlier, but tell me about the 2019 vintage and, and what it was like for you after coming off the string of yeah. Pretty, I would imagine, fairly simple. I loved the 2019 vintage for so many reasons. My husband gets to listen to all my little antics all summer long and all spring long and all my little weather updates. And he, he, he'll tell anyone that I was excited about the 2019 season early on. 
because it was we had an early bud break, but we never we never had the things that follow early bud break. We didn't see the crazy heat spikes. Um, the summer was super pleasant, mm -hmm. and if it wasn't for the early bud break, it would have felt like another. We would have been thinking, man, we're going to have another late harvest. But because once that train starts going, you can't really slow it down too much. So we kind of knew we were going to have a somewhat early harvest just because of the phenology and how the vines started growing. But we had, we didn't have stress. We didn't have heat spikes. We didn't have water stress. The vines were happy. Um, and it was just one of those moments where when you're looking at your vineyards and you just know, I don't have to do, like with, with, for me, my philosophy is in grape growing, especially for Pinot and Chardonnay, because they're so transparent. They show everything, which is what's, what I love. But you, you, they show the mistakes. And so you can't play catch up with Pinot and Chardonnay. You have to see where the season's going before it goes there and hope that you're right. Um, and you have to make decisions at the proper time. And that's what I'm trying to do always. And you can't come back in afterwards and say, oh, this happened, let's do this and see if it helps because it's already, it already, it's already left its footprint in the grape and you're gonna taste it in the wine. Mm -hmm. It's already happened. Mm -hmm. You might be able to take your winemaker out there and they don't see it because you've brought the crew in and you fixed it, but it didn't happen at the right time. And so that's me just always trying to like be ahead of it and, and time that perfectly so I can really um, let the grapes be the best that they're of their potential. Um, and so for me in 2019, it didn't really feel like, man, this, this is coming down the pipeline. I need to do this. Mm -hmm. Or I think this is, I think this is happening and we should respond this way. It was just like, the vineyards are happy. Like, this is great. Everyone's, no one's like, you know, there's no heat strokes. There's no heat spikes. Like vines aren't wilting. There's not a bunch of fruit. There's just the right amount of fruit. Everything's just happy. And um, so I felt really good about it. And then when we got to, when we got to the rains, well, it rains several times during the growing season, which even in a cool year in Oregon, you don't see. Normally, July 4th rains over, plan your wedding. <laughs> but this year we saw rain in the summer and um, that was different. And so looking back on it, I should have been like, this is gonna be an interesting year because we're getting rain, but at the same time I was like, sweet, we just gotta drink water. Um, and then the rains came and no one really freaked out at first. And then the second round of rain came and then people kind of started to panic because the rain came at a time where the fruit was ripe enough that it's, it didn't have the integrity of fruit that should be getting a bunch of rain, but not ripe enough to just pick it. Mm -hmm. So we knew we had to hang. And um, we ended up picking much later than all of us thought we were. But I remember coming into the winery probably two weeks after some of the first things had been delivered. So they had just gone dry and tasting some of the stuff and just smiling at Gina and being like, this is good. Like, <laughs> this is good. And I think it's because this is, this is where I've this is where I've come to with Oregon Pinot, and this is why I love this place so much. My theory is when you have an easy vintage, like where you don't have to, you don't have to worry about a lot of disease, you don't have to worry about heat units, and you don't have to worry about all the things that can happen. 
and harvest is early and so all the fruit comes in before the rain and it's just bringing truckloads of clean fruit to the winery, right? Those vintages, they don't, um, they, I don't think they separate themselves from the vineyards as much as in the more challenging vineyards. I think in the challenging vineyards, that's or the challenging vintages, those vineyards, they, that's when they start to show their personality and their sense of place. And as long as you've done a good job, doing your job as a vineyard manager all summer long, setting your vineyard up, managing it properly, and you deliver fruit to a winemaker who knows what they're doing, those challenging vintages can become some of the most celebrated ones in the bottle because they're very complex. Um, and so that, for me, is what I love. And I love, I love the challenge, and I love seeing how it's just so much more rewarding when you know that there was, it was actually, that we actually had to do work mm -hmm. to pull that off and now taste this. Like it's just, you're just so much more excited to share it with people. You're so much more proud of it. Um, that was 2019. The wines are incredible. Yeah, we're excited to share them with the world for sure. Um, and that was my first vintage since I've been in charge where something interesting happened at harvest. There's been interesting things all summer long. Um, but that was where it was like, okay, this is, I'm being put to the test. People are watching me mm -hmm. and I got to make sure I'm delivering clean, clean fruit to the winery and that we're making good wine this year. Like that's when it became like pressures on. Um, and I loved it. And I'm, we're due, Oregon's due for a cold vintage. This wasn't, 2019 wasn't a cool vintage. It was, it was actually an early vintage with an interesting ending story. <laughs> um, but I'm talking like a 2011 where we've all finished Halloween and we're scheduling harvest. Like it's been a little while since we've seen that. And I think that's where, that's, that is what separates the pack. Yeah. You like a little special designate on the on the labels that show the amount of the amount of work you had to do to, on, in the vineyard. How many times I hit the refresh button on like the six weather apps that I have on my phone? <laughs> yeah, harvest is when I mean, it's so interesting because you work all you work all year. Like I'm right now, I'm working for for harvest 2020, and it's just this crazy. Um, career where everything is like it literally as a vineyard manager it's not all about harvest because really it's all about everything else that's my job managing the crew scheduling the work managing the vines that are growing making sure they're being sprayed properly managed properly the whole thing is in this perfect balance but when you think about it all of it's for harvest mm -hmm. and um what's crazy is you can have these certain things that happen throughout the growing season and then something can happen at harvest and it just changes it overnight and it's just um, that's when you realize you don't have control of the situation and that's why you have to be on your a-game starting in January and just making sure that you're making all the proper decisions at the proper timing and that your vineyard is being um, just set up for success for whatever September is going to throw at it so if someone wanted to someone were graduating from college now wanted to do what you do what would your words of wisdom be I would 100% encourage them to do it because it is very fulfilling lifestyle. I wouldn't even call it a job. It's a lifestyle. It's a. It's just a way of life that um, is invigorating. 
and challenging and um, there's many different ways to get to this position into a vineyard management role. There's, I'm, you could probably interview all of us and we all have a different path, which is very, um, that's, that should be a relief for a lot of people. It might be frustrating for some people because they don't know exactly how to approach it, mm -hmm. but at the same time, it's, there's so many different ways to come to wine. Um, and just finding, finding your passion, sticking with your gut has been my, I mean, that's what got me here and that's what gets me through these growing seasons. I mean, that's how I'm making my farming decisions is just you have to be a person who can tap into what you know and be able to go out and find information that you don't know, but you have to be able to go off of your instinct if, if you're in this position. And so that's what I would probably challenge people most on is why do you want to go into this and how do you respond to these types of situations? Because that's the reality of farming. Mm -hmm. It's a lot of knowledge, it's a lot of experience, but every year is different and so you just have to be able to put it all together and just make a decision and go with it. All the questions that we have for you. Perfect. Is there anything we didn't ask that we should have? Anything that we didn't cover, should have covered? Um, anything you'd like to mention here at the end? No. You guys asked a lot of questions. <laughs> that, was, that was her? That was good. <laughs> I think I'm good. Okay. I think my story has been captured if you guys are good. Awesome. Well, good. thank you. Thank cool. you so much. Yeah, uh, absolutely. appreciate it. And uh, we'll let you off the hook. Thank you for joining us for this edition of the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. And thank you to all the supporters, partners, donors, and interviewees who have made our project a success. Be sure to check out our website at OregonWineHistoryArchive.org for more interviews, plus photographs, wine labels, and more. And stay tuned for more interviews as we tell the story of Oregon wine. The Oregon Wine History Archive podcast is brought to you by the Oregon Wine History Archive at Linfield College. The executive producer is Kiana Anderson. Producers are Rich Schmidt, Rachel Woody, Stephanie Hoffman, and Camille Weber. And a special thanks to all the Linfield Archive students who have contributed to these oral history interviews over the years.